All right, we're well, good to see everybody today. Grab your Bibles, turn to the letter of James in the New Testament. That's going to be around, well, well, check it out. In my Bible, it's 1,216. That's the page it's on. That might not help you out unless you have my exact Bible. Uh, there are some Bibles down the center aisle of seats. You're welcome to grab one of those. And if you grab one of those, it's fine letter print. It's going to be around the 600s. 684, I think, is where it starts. We're going to be, we're going to start in verse 27 of verse 1 of chapter 1 and go through verse 13 of chapter 2. As you're turning, um, this is a unique book. It's written by a unique author, primarily because uh, James is the little brother of Jesus. And I don't know how you get, I mean, you can't get more special than that. Um, and we learn a little bit about Jesus through James' writing. Uh, as you would any brother that grew up with uh, a sibling that's famous, James himself not being famous, but other than being in the Bible, but his brother being famous. Uh, in that James is Jesus' brother, you would expect that he would talk a lot about Jesus, but he doesn't. He only mentions his name a couple times. And for those of you familiar with the Apostle Paul's writing, we don't even get that flavor of Jesus' life and what he's done from James. James sort of hides that. James brings us a practical um, kind of, of work, uh, and he mentions the word faith a lot. James wants us to have a faith that works. He wants our faith to, uh, to be a faith that's in action. I like to say it, James wants us to live what we believe, and that really is what we've learned as we've started in chapter one, uh, sort of pressing on through, and we'll cross over and, and really uh, see that same theme as we look at chapter 2. So we're going to read these verses, and then we're going to primarily be in chapter 2 today. Let's read these out loud together, starting in verse 27 of chapter 1. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you are you have dishonored the poor man and not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pause to acknowledge your presence amongst us, Lord. You have said that where two or three are gathered together in your name, as we are here today, that you are in our midst. So, Lord, we, whether we feel that or sense that you are amongst us, you have promised that you are here. You're here because we're here. You indwell us. And so we thank you. Lord, we thank you for the gathering of your church today, for the hearing and the preaching of your word. Uh, Lord, we honor you, not just with our presence, with, but with our minds. God, would you allow us to be present in this moment that uh, these uh, divine words would penetrate the thickness of our minds and of our skins, that we would get around the distractions that await us when we leave this place, and that, that we would hear you speak. Um, Lord, we, we come in with different circumstances going on, 
and uh, perhaps even different burdens that plague us this morning. And more than just asking you to rid us of all those things that plague us, Lord, would you, would you allow us just um, the comfort of knowing that you're with us, walking alongside us, guiding us, speaking to us, singing over us even songs of deliverance. And Lord, we lastly pray that, uh, that we would see your gospel in the scripture and that it would change us to be more like Jesus. And we pray that in his name. Amen and amen. So psychologists agree that there are two things that most of us desire. The first is to belong. We're not made solitary people. We aren't supposed to live life all by ourselves. And so we want to feel like we belong to something. The other is, is that we all want to be respected. We, we have this innate desire for, for dignity. And when we don't experience either of those, but definitely both of those together, um, it's as if our world has caved in on us. We feel like we've been rejected. And honestly, I would tell you, it, it hurts. And I think all of us at some point in our life, have felt that. Uh, but here's the interesting thing. Even if you loathe being isolated, if you loathe uh, being disrespected, it's so easy that sometimes we do this to other people. And perhaps one of the easiest people groups on our planet that we do this to, that we dismiss, that we disregard, are the poor amongst us. Think of the, the homeless man sitting at the entrance uh, or the exit of the metros uh, as you go in and out of, of D.C. I traveled this week, and uh, the Lord had, I mean, I was busy, I, too busy to even write a sermon, but the Lord just brought my, the sermon before me. I went to Raleigh uh, to a, a cohort that I uh, attend quarterly, and the church that we were meeting at was right across from a park by the bus station filled with homeless people just hanging out. Um, Nick and I were at an Acts 29 conference at the end of the week in New York City, right by our hotel. Homeless people just lying in the, you know, along the, the walkways outside, the hotel, outside of the hotel, outside of uh, vending places, just laying there on the ground, just looking for a little bit of, uh, of solace they can call, call their own. Um, celebrate my birthday this weekend. And so uh, I got back. I was gone all week. So Saturday morning, uh, the family took me out to breakfast, and uh, on our way back from uh, the Tyson's area, we are at a signal light, and on the median was a young Caucasian woman. She held up a sign. It says, homeless and pregnant. I, I just need help. And, uh, I mean, these things are all around us. And so what does the Bible say that we're supposed to do? about that. I mean, are we supposed to do anything? How should our faith affect how we treat the people who are the least of these in our society? And what does, as James says in this passage, what does true religion actually look like? I think James addresses that particularly as he's finishing out chapter one, pressing into chapter two, and he starts in verse 27. Verse 27 says, religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So chapter one has been all about testing our faith. Um, James says that tests lead to perseverance and maturity. Tests aren't just to remind you that life sucks, although it can. Tests are, you know, especially if you're a Christian, it's to, it's to bring into your present reality that God is at work amongst us. That's what a test and a trial is supposed to do for you. Um, and and here's, here's something that I really believe that James is portraying to us, especially in chapter 1, crossing over in chapter 2. If God's life is at work in us, and if our life belongs to God, he's saying in verse 27, we should be moved by the needs of those around us, particularly orphans and widows. Now, this is a, this is a special concern that James has um, orphans and widows in his day aren't like the orphans and widows of, of our day. If you were an orphan or a widower in the first century kind of, of world, you had two, two options to survive. You either went into prostitution or you, you subjected yourself to, to slavery. I mean, that, that was it. They were the neediest people in all of uh, that known society. 
And what the scripture is telling us, James is telling us, but really the testimony of scripture is telling us is that God cares about those that can't care for himself. And so God, through the words of, of scripture, tells us um, that God moves on the needs of those who can't help themselves. God has compassion on them. And if his life is in us, what James is encouraging, really what he's challenging us with, is that if his life is in us, we are to have compassion for those things to which God has compassion for, because that's God's character, and it's supposed to be reflected in us. Here's what scripture says, Psalm 68, 5. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Exodus 22, 21 through 24, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and then cry out to me, I will hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. God was ruthless about taking care of people who could not care for themselves. And note, this says nothing about if you, you know, if that sojourner, if that widow or orphan um, is of God, is of the people of God. Regardless of what their circumstance was, he, he, he had a special affinity to care for those people who were down and out. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. There's something in the heart of God that, um, that wants to care for those that can't care for themselves. I think it's in God's character. And if God's life is truly at work in us, then it should be become a part of our character as well. That's what James is telling us. James uses the term in verse 27, pure religion. And that can be like a, that can be both negative and positive in our Christian vernacular nowadays. Sometimes when you say religion in, in our reform context, we can, we can really mean like not good stuff. It can mean someone that's legalistic or just follows a bunch of rules because he's, uh, he or she has been told to do that. Um, James is not using the word like we use it. Uh, I mean, sometimes when we say religion, we're talking about, I went to church on Sunday, I did my quiet time three times, I mean, that's pretty good, right? Um, I, prayed before I, uh, I prayed before I ate my meal, um, I did some specific work for the church. I'm, I'm, uh, if you have a friend that's not, that's not spiritual, that's not a Christian, a lot of times they'll look at you if they know that you are a Christian and call you religious, and that's not a, a put down, that they're they're acknowledging that there's something spiritual about you. That's not how James is using this term. James is calling pure religion pure worship. In James' vernacular, worship moves us to care for the needs of those around us. It's pure. Uh, in other words, it comes from the heart. Uh, one of the commentaries that I'm referring to as we work through this series is a commentary by the, it's called The Message of James. It's written by a British scholar by the name of Alec Mortier. Uh, he's, a, he's important. So he's a, not that you need to know, but he's, he's a cool guy. All right. He, I mean, he dives in on this idea of, of religion. He says, religion is a comprehensive word for the specific ways in which a heart relationship with God is given outward expression. Boil that down. What is he saying? Um, we live from our heart. Everything that we do to include those spiritual things, such as caring for those who can't care for themselves, uh, we might do it on the surface just because we see other people around us, because the pastor tells me to, because my church is, gonna, is having an outreach and we're going to go and give out sodas or something, wash some cars for free. But if it's pure, if it's unadulterated, if it's really coming from a perspective of holiness, there's no taint of, of anything wrong in it then it has to come from the heart, and only God can breathe that in us. That's what he's saying. It, it begins in our heart, and it pours out from us. Verse 27, James also says that we are to remain unstained from the world. Now, that word world is translated differently in the Bible. Again, uh, Alec Motyer says this, the world is the whole human scheme of things organized in terms of human wisdom to obtain human goals without reference to God, God's values, or his ultimate judgment. Um, the world, as James is using it, are all those things in you and, and around you that have not submitted themselves to God. Just, I mean, just ponder that. All those ways that you have yet, even perhaps as a Christian, not submitted yourself 
to God. What could those ways be? It could be in your job. It could be in your relationship. It could be uh, in, ho- in how you deal with your wealth or fame. Uh, I mean, it literally could be anything. And so here's the question that James wants us to ask ourselves. Um, is there something in your life that stands between you and Jesus? Is there something that you're giving lordship to? Ponder that. Ponder that. Ponder that for a second. Because therein, in all those ways, you're not living from your heart. And you you don't have it in you to 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 have the compassion that God would have you have for those who are poor. And and it's not like you can change your heart. God has to do that. I'm going to get to that get to that at the end. All right, cross over to verse uh, chapter two. My brothers, verse one, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If I could rephrase that, here's what James is saying. He's saying it's your faith that empowers you not to show partiality. In other words, if you don't have faith, you're more likely to be partial to a lot of different things in in life. This, this phrase, show no partiality, uh, uh, has a, a Hebrew root to it. James is like an Old Testament theologian, so he mentions the Old Testament and gives us uh, symbolism of Old Testament verses quite a lot in, in, his, in his writing. And so the, the Hebrew term literally means lift up a favor. And the picture that, he, that the word has behind it is a king in procession. Say the king was just displaying his glory before his, his citizenry, or perhaps the king had come from war and he wanted to process his army around so that his citizens could see it. And so the king is parading down the street. The citizens, because they have to, are lined along the street. And their normal posture wouldn't just be uh, like onlookers gazing at what was going on in the parade. It was to show deference to how great the king was and to lower their eyes. And so if and only if the king gave a certain signal in ancient societies, would they be able to lift up their eyes so they could see the grandeur of the king? That, that really is the, like one of the first ancient perspectives of this phrase, show partiality. It went, later went on to be used in the court of law to indicate showing partiality in court and, and judgment cases, a judge giving favor to um, someone that was on trial for whatever reason. And then finally, it came to be used, more likely use it today, in reference to giving someone favor based on external Appearances, and that really is how we do it. I mean, when, when you're showing partiality to someone, you're favoring someone based upon primarily how they look on the external. That's what James means by showing partiality. And what he's saying is this goes against the character of God. Again, this is what Scripture says, Romans 2.11. For God shows no partiality, Paul writes. In Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. And so here's the train of thought that James has given us so far. If God shows no partiality, and if God is at work in us, then we should not show partiality. Why? Because not being partial is God's character. He wants us to have his same character. All right, so James then, I mean, he just goes one, one step further. He's going to give us an example. All right, so if, you, if you're doing that, stop doing it. Let me give you an example of what it looks like. Verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, Verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I mean, that's a pretty clear example. Um, That's very clear, uh, very clear writing. But let me put this in a modern context. All right, so um, y'all know the iPhone's the best phone, right? And all those others are just like makeshift copycats, stuff that's going to blow up or you can't even put on the aircraft anymore, right? Right, right, right. so let's, let's pretend, just because we can pretend, that Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, drove up and was planning to come to church. And he drove up in his nice car, 
and he got out of the car in his nice clothes, and he had already prepared a nice check that he was going to put in the offering box at the end of service. And I think Tim Cook is openly gay, so he, he didn't come, I mean, he didn't have a family of his own, but he comes with like his sister, and they, she's married, and they got kids. They come to the door, you're serving in guest services that day, and because you're an Apple fan, you got your iPhone, it's got like stuff on it, like you already got the iPhone out, you're taking a picture, I'm taking a picture of y'all right now. You're taking your picture of Tim Cook walking up in all his grandeur, and you start to think, you know, you got to do your spiel, right? Or, right, welcome to the transit. My name is Jeff. Uh, you have kids with you. Our kids ministry check-in is right here. There's free coffee if you like. The bathrooms are up here, and we worship right here in this room right here. And so all this stuff is going by. Um, you see the kids, and you think, oh, my kids are gonna, my kids are gonna play with their kids in in transit kids this morning. And then you think, well. My kids are going to play with their kids. Suppose my kids and their kids like each other. That might mean that Tim Cook and his family might start liking me. And if my kids play with Tim Cook's family's friends and transit kids and they like each other, he, maybe he'll, I don't know, maybe he'll send me an email and say, hey, we had fun at Transit Church and that was pretty cool. Uh, would you like to come to Apple's uh, Christmas party? <laughs> and then maybe if... My kids play with his kids in transit church, and um, his kids like my kids, and like we sort of like you know make eye contact. He emails me and invites me to Apple's Christmas party. Maybe he'll because I read on the internet, you know, the internet's all true, that Tim Cook was going to give all of his uh, all of his like corporate profits away. Like I read that somewhere. Maybe he'll give me some of his his corporate profits. Well, you know what? That new MacBook with the OLED thing, where the function keys are, that came up. Maybe he'll just send me one of these, one of those wrapped up in a present. You know what? I like this Tim Cook guy. I'm going to put him, like, not in the front row because the front row's not saved. Right, I'm going to put, not you two. I'm going to put him on the worship side where all the people sit on the third row behind Blake because Blake likes to talk. He's like one of the friendliest people in the whole church. But then you have, same guy, I'm, I'm serving at your services, you have a family. And they get up, and they're in the woods back here because they live back there. And there are actually a couple of homeless people in that family that live over in these woods. And they meander across the road. They come to the door. It's their first time at church. They're wearing shabby clothes. They smell. Their hair is all disheveled. The kids, I mean, just look, look bad. And they walk in. And you do your spiel. Hey, welcome to Transit Church. My name is Jeff. And uh, y'all come here for church? And so you start thinking to yourself, man, their kids are going to be with my kids in Transit Church this morning. Mm. And God catches you. He catches you thinking through that. My kids are going to be back there with their kids this morning in transit church. So do I just do I just like go through the whole spiel? Do I do I just like turn this over to Tamara because she's better at dealing with people like this, or do I just like dismiss? I mean, where am I going? To, where am I going to sit them? I can't sit them near Tim Cook. What is he going to think? They smell, and perhaps God will speak to you in that moment, and He'll ask you, what do you think I would do? What do you think? How do you think God would treat them? These are imperfect examples, but think about your own life. Um, Let me bring us back to reality for a second. Remember middle school? I mean, this life, life, life is like crazy in middle school. And I only remember that because I'm old. I don't remember that because I know my, I remember my own kids going through middle school. And middle school is crazy no matter what generation you've grown up in. Middle school is that, that period of life when you begin to, I mean, who you are and, and like your popularity is based upon what you wear and who you hang out with. Back in my day, if you didn't have like some designer jeans on, designer shirt and some cool shoes, it didn't matter who you knew. You were not in the in-group. In-group, out-group was decided firstly on what you looked like and then based upon the friends that you, you went around. It would be cool if if that kind of stuff stopped when we were in middle school, but unfortunately, it just like hangs on to us as we get older. 
And so as we get older, we start judging people by other standards. The car they drive, man, that's a nice car. The clothes they wear, you look good today. Where they work, ever catch yourself asking somebody, so, I mean, where do you work? You know, a lot of times we just are trying to do a little, little small chit chat, but oftentimes we're sizing them up. Like, where you work's gonna tell me what you do, how much money you make, where do you live? Definitely around in DC, you know. Close to the city, you might be living in a one-room apartment, but you can, you're paying a lot of money for a one-room apartment, right, you know, versus living a little bit further out. Where'd you grow up? I mean, even that, that question um, gets at something if we, if we aren't careful because it's trying to place a person in their current day with how they've lived in their background. Or how about this one? Where do you go to church? I mean, we size people up even in regards to the churches that we go to in terms of how affluent they are. We make judgments all the time about people, and when we do this, James in verse 4 is saying we've made distinctions among ourselves. But worse, he says, we've become judges with evil thoughts. This is like looking both ways. I mean, you're you're divided in your own self. We're calling ourselves Christians, but we're really not living it out. And, And here's what James, I mean, this is James' whole point. Live what you believe. Don't do that. We're giving a nod to God, but in reality, we're giving in to worldly snobbery. As a pastor, this was, this was in the news, maybe a couple of years ago. So a pastor, he was taking over a church, and he decided that his way of initiating his own self into this church was he was going to secretly go and become homeless for a week. Um, and so he took off his took off his pastor clothes and he put on as shabby clothes he could find and he just started hanging out, hanging out as a homeless person in his own city. Um, And he worked the whole week and he saw the, you know, just life through the lens of someone who has nowhere to go. And it was enlightening for him. He ended up that Sunday on the steps of the church to which he was going to take over. And then that morning, slowly in the midst of worship, he unraveled his homeless clothes and you know, emerged as, you know, the the pastor that was going to take over the church and preach to them this morning, and he said these words, too many of us want to serve God one day each week, but that won't cut it. That's not God's plan. To deny the poor is to deny Christ and our faith in him. The saddest point in in this man's experiment were some of the people who were the nastiest to him were those that he saw through the eyes of a homeless man that professed to know the Lord. James says, the world chooses the rich and wealthy to exalt, but who does God choose? Verse 5, he says, I got to find verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? We could easily read this and say God is anti-rich. He's not. And it's not even nuanced. God is not anti-rich. He's pro-poor. He's not saying the rich aren't welcome into the kingdom of God, but he is, he is overtly and directly reaching out to the poor. And we see that from the beginning to the end of Scripture. The truth of the matter is the gospel always offers much more to the poor. And it demands a lot from the rich. Why is that? Because the rich have a lot, the poor have nothing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, but many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth, but God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. I like these words that Paul says here, that God chooses the weak in the world so that he will be glorified. Why is that? Because, I mean, if you see somebody that the world has slighted or that doesn't have much or that can't speak, you know, even... I mean, all the, the, the things that make us um, attractive to society, 
God goes against that and takes someone who purposefully doesn't have all that and elevates them in their humility so that he would get the glory. That people wouldn't see and know that the power is not in the world or in its systems or in affluence or in any of those things that normally attract us. It's in him working through people like that. And here's what the rich, the rich have a challenge. They have a challenge of realizing that what the world offers is nothing but fool's gold. True riches are with Christ. And Jesus reminds us that this is not easy to do, to be a rich person and to be uh, a person of faith. Mark 10 is the uh, the well-known passage of the rich young man. The rich young, uh, uh, Jesus is walking. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He comes, uh, a, rich, uh, a rich young man, we call him that because that's, that's how he's introduced in Scripture, comes up to Jesus and asks him, oh, Lord, Rabbi, how do I gain eternal life? And uh, Jesus um, knows the man, and he gives him uh, some Ten Commandments to do. Uh, basically, he gives them the horizontal commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, honor your father and your mother. And the man, the rich man, comes back and says, I've done all those. I've done them all my life. And so the scriptures say this. It says Jesus sees him and knows him, which means he's penetrating through the facade of who he is to the inner core of the man. And Jesus tells him, one thing you lack, go and Give away all that you have to those who are poor and come follow me. And here we hear these words. Jesus says, it's, it's easier. He says this to his disciples. It's easier for a camel to go through the eyes of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Guess what the man did? He bowed his head, turned his back on Jesus and walked away. For me, I, I mean, I always come away from reading that. That's the saddest verse in all the Bible to me because this man had an invitation from the Lord to, to give up his worldly goods for that which is in, of inestimable value, and he turned his back on it. The rich have all these worldly comforts, but Jesus offers us what's of inestimable value. What the world offers is temporary and fleeting. They don't last. And here's the thing, and I'm not going to beat you up on this. Honestly, we're, we're all the rich man. I mean, we're, we are all the rich man. Um, I've said this to you before. If you live in D.C., anywhere, I don't care if you like got $10 to eat, you're, you're rich compared to a lot of the country, but more importantly, to the rest of the world. Here's some stats. 80% of the people that live on the world live on less than $10 a day. 3 billion of the 7.1 million people in the world live on less than $2.50 a day. Another 1 billion people live on less than a dollar a day. If you are a young professional, in D.C. making about $40,000, you're struggling. <laughs> you're struggling, but, you know, you're either living with a roommate, living in a basement, or, you know, you're shacked up with like 10, 10 guys, or you're living like a little bit further out and commuting in the work. Um, so, it's you know, you got to qualify that. But guess what? You're in the top 5% of all the wealth in the whole world. This is, these are 200, 2013 stats. And I know it's crazy. We've got a lot of wealth and riches, and we're called to come to the aid of those around us. This is not a, a, a diss of, of wealth. It's an expression of love to the poor. Here's, here's what James is conveying to us. I'm going to get off this point. If Jesus' life is in us and our lives belong to him, then the expectation is that we will express our love to the poor. Here's the thing. In the DMV, we don't have to go outside of our region. We don't have to go outside of the immediate place where we live to actually be involved and be participants in this, this idea of helping those who can't help themselves. There are opportunities right here at the transit. There's a couple of organizations that we support and are partnering with that are, I mean, just doing great work to help those that can't help themselves. Bethany House of Northern Virginia is uh, uh, provides safe houses to women who and their families who've been abused. And we have a former board member, and a couple of you that habitually um, volunteer for that organization right in the midst of our church. Central Union Mission, we only got involved with them because we had a family here that was serving there. Uh, they provide homeless care 
two, uh, two meals a day and shelter for those who are um, the least of these in the DC, uh, DC area in particular and the region um, in general. Um, I don't know why God is doing this, but um, there, there are at least eight to 10 families that have come through the transit that have been involved in uh, orphan care, foster care and adoption. We have four families right now in our church that are either that recently have adopted or that are in the process of adoption. Jeremy and Kate are going to, Jeremy, raise your hand. They're going to China on Friday to receive their two and a half year old baby. And they, I mean, it's just like they're pregnant in anticipation of, you know, of getting there and getting their third child. And I love that God is doing that in our midst. Um, this is, this is, um, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I also believe, uh, that God doesn't make mistakes, even in the sermons that I preach. And, uh, and three weeks ago, maybe a month ago, I met with Peter and Alicia, who both were feeling, all right, what can we be doing evangelistically as a church? I mean, we, wanna, we don't just want to do just to do, but we want to we do the right thing that God has, has for us to do. And I met with them. And I said, let's table this discussion. I'm going to preach on this in three weeks. Um, and so I don't, we, don't have a, we don't have a, this is what we're going to do, but this is what we, this is what we decided on. Let's, let's have a focus group, because it's not just those two that are evangelist, evangelistically driven, that want to put feet to our faith. There's more of you. And I want them to gather with those of you who, who want to do something, not just doing something just to do it. I'm, I'm opposed to that. Uh, but the unique thing that God would have us do right here in the midst of where all of us live. And we're kind of scattered, but perhaps there's something that God would have us do. Um, along these lines of what James is talking about here. So you'll hear more about that in Evangelism Focus Group. We are to move to the needs of the poor the way Jesus did. We are to honor the poor the way Jesus did. Why? Because everybody has value in the eyes of God. There's, there's level footing at the foot of the cross. Verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well, verse 9. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James makes a transition right here as we begin uh, verse 8. Um, this section, he's, he's forcing us to look inward. Okay, he's, he's forcing us to examine our own actions in regards to ways that we may have shown partiality to, to those that just pass us by in life and ways that we... Um, that we violated the law. Um, James really is coming with, a, I think he's coming with an attitude. He's like saying, look, if, if you're one of the, the, the few people in the world that can actually obey the, the royal law, you know, the, the big one, the one that Jesus talked about when people asked him about it, love your neighbor as yourself, that one, if you're one of the few people that can obey that and obey, do it perfectly, then check it out. You don't have to read another word that I'm saying. You can just go ahead on and live your life because you're already perfect. But then, of course, in verse 9, he basically says, all right, there ain't, ain't nobody like that but Jesus. <laughs> and, if, and in verse 9, he uses the S word. Okay? And um, I don't know how many times you all say sin outside of listening, you know, like reading it in Scripture when you come to church or, or maybe talking to somebody that's super spiritual. But, but he uses the S word and he connects it to us showing partiality. He's saying showing partiality is is really the opposite command of loving your neighbor as yourself. Think back to the Leviticus scripture that we looked at moments ago. Leviticus 19, 15 said, God doesn't like it when we show partiality to, to other people uh, that are great in deference to those who that are poor. And then he sort of finishes this thought in Leviticus 19, 18, saying, um, in particular, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You ever... Ever your mom, you ever get in an argument with your mom or your dad and you're going back and forth and your mom just like brings the conversation to an end. She's like, listen, it's going to be this way because I said so. And that's what that's what God is doing here. He's like, love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. I, why, why are you supposed to do that? Because I said so. I mean, do you need any other rationale? He's bringing I mean, bring some flavor here. <laughs> that's the way I read it. I'm sorry. We're to move to the needs of those around us. To sin is to show partiality. 
it's against the will of God. Now, our tendency might be to say this. Well, you know, that's just a small sin. I mean, who doesn't? I mean, it's, it's sort of in us to do that. Everybody does it. And then James is expecting us, anticipating us to say that. And he has a response for it in verse 10. In verse 10, he says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said don't commit adultery also said don't murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And so the law is not a series of independent commands. It's a whole. They all go together. And if you fail in one part of the law, you have failed in all of the parts of the law. The law reflects the lawgiver. The law reflects God's character. We can't say, you know what, I do this one really good. That one right there, not so much. You know, this one right here, I do that 50% of the time, so can I get like partial credit? God doesn't work like that. It's like a crack in your window. I was driving on the, coming off of 495, and I saw one of those Safe Light dealers pulled over the road fixing somebody's windshield. You know, I mean, you get a crack in your windshield, you got to get it fixed, or that joke is going to like spread through the whole glass, right? Or say you're doing a, a little experiment with your kids, and you take a glass, and you have one of the medicine droppers, you're going to drop a little bit of colored dye in the glass. The, the, the dye doesn't just stay in that one singular spot, right? It spreads through the whole thing. That's what James is saying. One sin, even a small sin like partiality, spreads. I mean, it, it's, it's just going to spread. You can't help it. The law represents the whole. We break one, we break them all. Jesus says the same thing in the Sermon of the Mount. Matthew 5, 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is basically saying here, I'm not taking the law away. You're required to fulfill all of it perfectly. Thank God he follows us up by saying, you can't do it. I'm going to do it for you. What do you got to do? Trust in me for your salvation. And so back to verse 10, this is a hypothetical. James is saying, you know, in the likely, in the unlikely chance that any of you have been able to keep the royal law perfectly, there are none of us like that. Remember back that we did the Ten Commandments months ago? All of us have broken the Ten Commandments. We've broken all of them and we do it all of the time. So here's James' point. Sin starts in our heart. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Sin is in our DNA. It's been that way since the fall. And that is why we need Jesus. None of us can live the perfect standard of the law. God is not taking it away. We need the cross of Jesus. We need the triumph of his resurrection. Otherwise, we have no hope. And that's what James leads us to in the last two verses. Verse 12. So speak, so, uh, so speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. Um, when I read this, it's almost as if these words don't go together. I mean, the law oppresses and liberty is suggesting a freedom. But here's what James is, is, of course, he's giving us an Old Testament analogy here. Think back to how Israel was freed from slavery. They were free from oppression in Egypt before God gave the law. And the order is important. And so God gives the law to help order our lives in the freedom that we're supposed to live in after being set free. So you're in bondage. God frees you. And then he gives you uh, his character and his loving rule to live by so that you don't... Um, you don't go outside of the freedom for which he wants you to, to live in. Why? Because we'll overdo it. I think it's that same thing that James is saying here. God knows that when we break his laws, we hurt ourselves and others. We come into bondage to sin that we've committed. But here's the alternative. We're made in the image of God, and the law reflects his, reflects his character. So when we obey the law, we're living more in the way that God intended for us to live. And the law is doing what it's supposed to do. It's simply reminding us in, in very specific ways that we can't do it on our own. We need help. We need Jesus. And that brings us to verse 13. 
I'll conclude with this. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You, you add verse 12 to verse 13, and here's what James is saying. There is a, a just judge who has every right to hang over us a non-favorable judgment because of our sin. But God offers mercy. To connect this whole thing, James still here has in mind our sin over the poor. Okay, he's not dismissed. He's not disconnecting these thoughts. He's saying the, the, the poor and the down and out, those who can't care for themselves in our society, they need our mercy. They don't need our judgment. They, they don't need us to look at them and make judgments about them and say, you're lazy. You, I mean, you put yourself in this predicament. They need our mercy. That's what he's saying. And we are ones who have received God's mercy as well. And so if we are the ones who have received God's mercy when we didn't deserve it, who are we to not extend it to those who God loves just, just because they look a certain way or they're in a disposition that you're not in? And that should be good news to you, that God offers mercy to you because you believe in the person and work of Jesus on the cross. All right, so let me, disclosure. James has not finished this. I mean, he does not close this out and make it pretty for us. He doesn't actually do that until chapter four when he starts talking about uh, applying the grace of God to our lives. And so I'm going to superimpose what he would say if we were in chapter four uh, to, to bring this to a closure. James is telling us mercy triumphs over judgment when we admit our own sin and repent. And so very simply today, I mean, the, the, the whole theme is there are those amongst us that God cares about and perhaps all of us have slided them. And he's not telling specifically what you have to do towards them, but he's saying don't judge. Because when you judge, you're, you're doing it from an evil heart. And it's, you're doing it from a, a perspective of evil, and that evil is coming from your heart and it's convicting you. Small sin, but it's convicting you. Mercy triumphs over judgment when we turn to Jesus in the gospel. And, of course, you got to get, get some little Paul here. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a picture of mercy, that God doesn't wait until we've reached some level of righteousness. He comes to us in the midst of our broken mess to rescue us. Paul says in Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Which basically says, we all will fall, we all have fallen in small ways like showing, uh, being partial to those who don't look like us or who we don't think deserve our, uh, our attention. But we've fallen in larger ways, but God's mercy triumphs over the judgment we deserve in and only because of Jesus. In Jesus, God's final word to his children is grace. Um, I didn't have, I mean, I was pressed to get this sermon together this week. I mean, it was just crazy with my travel. God showed mercy to me and to you by bringing the sermon before me in Raleigh at that park with all those homeless people in New York as they were lying across the road. Um, Nick and I were walking down the street, getting ready to get in the car, come back home. Young, beautiful girl, she must have been, I don't know, in her teens, reminded me of my daughter, comes up to us and asks us for money. What do you do? I don't have the answer of how you're supposed to respond in those moments. Sometimes it's a scam. It is. But let's err on the side of mercy. Along with, along with seeing those people who couldn't care for themselves this week, God just rolodexed for me the last two days just all the moments in my life from doing just crazy stuff when in my, in my, in my parents' house and you know, thinking they didn't know about it, but them just choosing not to say anything to me and letting Jeff deal with it, um, showing me mercy in a non-Christian kind of way because they were far from God. Um, and the stupid stuff you do in college to the things that you do as you're trying to make your way in the world. And I mean, what can I do but thank God for his mercy, for not giving me what I deserve? 
What does he do though? He, he extends his grace to me. He gives me Jesus. Let me ask you this, and I'll close with this. How has mercy triumphed over judgment in your life? God's mercy and his grace comes to all of us. What are you going to do with it? If you're uh, not a Christian here today, you wouldn't say that Jesus means anything to you. Perhaps today, mercy's come to you in this meeting. Will you accept it if you are a Christian? Perhaps you need to realize that you are, I mean, you're rescued. That God came in the middle of whatever the mess of your life was, and he extended not just grace, but mercy. He didn't give you what you deserved. And because God accepted us in our brokenness, here's James's plea. We're to accept others in their brokenness. Let's pray. Lord, these are tough words to deal with today. And, and more than just steps of, all right, do this. I think you just want to grab our hearts and make us compassionate for the things that you are compassionate for, that we would see what you see, love what you love, and that we will respond in the ways that in Scripture we see that you have responded. So, Lord, help us to walk this out. Help us not to be those people that, um, that see brokenness around us and have the means to do a little bit. You're not asking us to solve the world's problems. We can't do that by ourselves. But you are asking us to do the part that we, in our hearts, are supposed to do. Would you birth that in our church through even this uh, idea of a, an evangelism focus group? Would you birth ideas of how to show mercy to those around us, even in this affluent area, and grow us to be more like you? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.